Welcome to the final episode of Tisky Sour in 2022. Watch as we crawl listlessly into 2023. There is still a week to go. I have my alcohol-free beer ready to celebrate. I have my strepsils just in case there's a difficult moment over the next hour. And I'm joined by the one and only Owen Jones. How are you doing, Owen? I've got my my Greek yogurt. Oh, <laughs> I can see I've got it on my face. That's always a professional. Good. Great to see you, Michael. Happy Christmas, you little festive elf. Happy, happy Christmas to you too. Festive elf, I will, I will run with that. Happy Christmas to all of you watching. It is a time of great cheer. As you, you might be aware, I've been, I've been sort of struggling with the flu over the past two weeks. So it's, it's getting me a little bit down, but I think I'm towards the end of it. I am sure I will be fine by Christmas Day. And we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to do a review of the year, the four big stories of 2022. Let's get going. Our first story of 2022. Rail workers, posties, border guards, nurses, and ambulance drivers. These are just some of the workers who have made 2022 the year of the strike. Empty tracks, carriages at a standstill. The signs of yet another train strike. You've literally made your profile picture the hood. And I'm simply well, saying, I was so a massive... What? If it was a bunch I was of a flowers, would I be person in the world. He's the most evil puppet made out of vinyl in the world. Is that the level your journalism's at these days? I simply asked you if that was you and your Facebook page. Well, do, you, do, do you think I look like the most evil person in the world, Piers? Well, now you're asking me to, to answer a difficult question, Mick. I don't know you that well. All well, I'm I saying is you have the most evil person in the world. I'm just I think I'm a working-class bloke who's leading a trade union in a dispute over jobs, if you, pay and conditions. I understand. I have made many attempts on behalf of not just the 300,000 nurses that have been balloted, but the 500,000-plus nurses that I represent. And unfortunately, this government hasn't engaged with the Royal College of Nursing as yet. For 106 years, members of the Royal College of Nursing have never staged a strike. Today is the second walkout in less than a week. We all know that the, the major economic challenge we all face now is inflation. It's inflation that's eating into everyone's pay packets, it's rising the cost of living. And I want to make sure that we reduce inflation. Part of that is being responsible when it comes to setting public sector pay. So you saw there, Mick Lynch, Pat Cullen, and that final clip was Rishi Sunak speaking Today, um, he was being asked to respond to the announcement of two more strikes by the nurses' union. They'll be out on the 18th and 19th of January. So, I mean, this is very much a remarkable story of 2022. It's been a sort of common sense statement for years, decades in this country that we don't have a particularly militant labour force. You look to different countries in, in Europe, say France, for example, you've got workers who are much more inclined to go out on strike. In this country, less so ever since the unions were destroyed, or I suppose they, they evidently haven't been destroyed, but the unions were successfully attacked by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. We haven't had a particularly militant or organised trade union movement in this country. And we kind of seen that in wages, to be honest. Wages have stagnated certainly for the past 12 years, but they haven't been going up as fast as they should have been ever since the 1980s, ever since that decline of the trade union movement. And what I want to know from you, Owen, is uh, have we finally seen a reversal? Are trade unions back? And will this transform politics in the long term? Is this a surprise? Or could this just be, you know, we've got very high inflation, it's 10%. Of course, there's lots of people going on strike. If inflation is down in a couple of years' time, this might seem like a a thing from the past. Well, what will be the legacy of this strike wave and this continuing strike wave, I should say? 
I think we should look at this as a tentative revival of the British Labour movement. I mean, look, what happened in the 1980s was the Labour movement, the trade unions were crippled by a number of things. They were crippled by mass unemployment. Um, that's a disciplining measure. If you have three million people unemployed, you've got at least three million people terrified of losing their jobs. People become scared of going on strike as a consequence. You had, of course, the anti-trade union laws, which Tony Blair, when he came to power in 1997, said even with Labour's changes would be the most restrictive on unions in the Western world. And they've only got more restrictive since, particularly, obviously, under the David Cameron's coalition government. And you got the salutary defeats suffered, not least by the miners, who were seen as the kind of forward advance guard of the Labour movement. They brought down the Tory governments of the 1970s. The Tories never forgave them for it. They prepared for a dispute. And when they crushed the miners, a sense of defeatism really took hold of, of the Labour movement. If the miners can't win, then no one can win. And it's very hard to, it was very hard to shake off those. It was an epochal defeat, essentially, with terrible consequences, as you, as you mentioned, because we've seen the longest squeeze in living standards now since the Napoleonic age. For a long time, what happened was stagnating living standards was, was kind of hidden by cheap credit. But that can only go so far. It's obviously injected a lot of debt into your economy, which is not, not good. I mean, as one study, there's a study, an academic study, said that changes in bargaining power suffered by unions explains half the share, half the decline in the share of the economy going to wages in four decades in rich countries such as Britain. It's also interesting because it drags down non-unionised workers as well. There's a study in the US which shows that, which the existence of unionization drags up wages, not just for union uh, unionized workers, but non-unionized workers. So it's, it's dragged everyone's wages down. So I think what you've seen is in a very hostile legal framework, a number of unions, obviously at the end of their tether, nurses don't go on strike as a general rule. You are seeing the flexing of muscles of, of workers which been driven into a position where you need overwhelming support in order to get a strike to actually happen legally anyway. And I think that, you know, that that shows the desperation that exists. But also, I think it does, you know, where the reason Mick Lynch became a phenomenon, often amongst non-unionised workers, it should be said, younger workers tend to be more pro-union and yet less likely to be members of unions, is because I think it's tapping into a, rebir a rebirth of a class consciousness in this country, a sense of there is a defined us, which is people with a common shared set of interests on a collision course with them i.e. the elites. And actually, in the period of the boom, which was a financial bubble, which went with pretty disastrous consequences, it became easy to try and paper over those cracks and pretend we're all middle class now. That was the mantra of the 1990s and the 2000s. But I think what's happened in the last few years is a sense of there are people like you who have similar interests to other people like you. You've been screwed over and there were them, and they're having a laugh at your expense, and they're raking it in even, about in even when crises happen, or especially when crises happen. And so that's why, if you look at the polling, which shows huge support for unions, that's not normally actually what's happened. Over The miners enjoyed very little support, I'm afraid to say. They won the battle of public opinion afterwards, but not at the time. They went down to about 14% support at one point. The winter discontent, again, didn't enjoy the support of most people. But these strikes do. And that shows that people have thought to themselves, well, look, we've been screwed over. At least someone's fighting back. And that's why this is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, might it be, I suppose, to take the alternative position, and I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but might what Rishi Sunak is thinking or the government are sort of betting on is to say that Trade union movements, strikes, worker unrest is often popular at the beginning of the struggle and then loses popularity as time goes on. 
So as I say, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I don't know if it was the case that during the winter of the discontent, people were initially saying, you know, good on the workers for fighting back against the government and demanding higher pay rises or fighting back against their bosses, depending on who their employer was. I don't know if there was a similar thing going on in the miners' strike in the 1980s. And then over time, people say, oh, well, now I'm a bit tired of my rubbish not getting collected. Now, you know, they've been made, they've been given an offer. They should now just accept some sort of compromise. Is that in any way what happened in those previous disputes? And can you see that happening now? No. I mean, Eric Hobsbawm, the preeminent British Marxist historian, wrote a really interesting essay, which was actually quite angered a lot of people on the left at the time. It was called The Forward March of Labour Halted. And it actually made the point that actually there'd been at the time a breakdown in a sense of class solidarity, whereby you got strikes which were seen as sectional, which were basically antagonising and angering other sections of the working class. And that's what happened in those strikes in the 1970s. So it isn't the same. It's interesting, actually, because actually living standards overall of the 1970s did go up, by the way, for most people. It's really important that people recognise what's unique about the situation we're in is there is no parallel for such a prolonged squeeze in living standards. It's like if you look at the 1980s, in the 1980s, if you were unemployed, which was quite, I mean, it was a lot of people, it was the, the most since the Great Depression, you had a very bad situation. But for people in work, actually, lots of people's wages, their wages generally went up in the 1980s. And you've got a section of the working class, obviously, right to buy, which obviously in the long term ends up being a disaster, but they bought their own homes and all the rest of it. So you've got those divisions in the working class in the 70s and the 80s, which the right very successfully tapped into. What's unique about this situation is there is a very protracted squeeze in living standards, which doesn't just affect people who might see themselves as working class, but also people who might see themselves as middle class, whatever middle class really is. I mean, if you're going to take a Marxist definition of working class, then most of those people are middle class are actually working class. But in this country, we get bogged down in cultural definitions, which aren't very helpful. So I think what the reason you have support for strikes being far more widespread than the 80s or the 1970s is a sense of all of us are in this terrible situation. It's not just wages, things like the housing crisis for younger workers, by that I mean people under 40. It, it's public services which have simultaneously been cut. So it's kind of general living standards, isn't it? It's not just your wages. It's, it's actually the public realm in the last 12 years has been under such deliberate ideological assault that amongst the working age population there's a solidarity. If you look at the polling amongst pensioners, that's not true. Pensioner support for strikes amongst pensioners in this country is much lower than the working age population, often outright hostile, depending on, I mean, they were, I think they were more sympathetic to the nurses. And that's because I don't like generational conflict. There were 1.9 million pensioners in poverty, but pensioners have had their living standards protected. They're largely homeowners. They haven't suffered the same as the working age population. That's why you've got this divide. So it is different from the 1970s and 1980s. And it's that general Decline in living standards, which is so unique and driving that solidarity. Let's look. I mean, you've talked there about sort of stagnating wages and how unprecedented it is. There's a great chart in the FT um, from a recent article by John Byrne Murdoch. He's sort of explaining how basically austerity got us into the mess that we're currently in and is, is the context for which we are seeing this wave of strikes. And you can see here, it shows the change in wages since 2009. They've been below the level they were in 2009 ever since. And they're currently more than 5% lower than they were in 2009. That's median wages. Now, what you can see in grey there 
is how wages have changed in what the FT call peer countries. So they include Austria, Canada, Denmark, Germany, France, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the US. And you can see in all but one of those countries, wages are higher than they were in 2009, and many of them significantly higher than they were in 2009. And Britain is way, way below all of those other peer countries. Owen, do you think this year is the first time when it feels like you know, no one's really willing to defend austerity anymore. It seems that now everyone has accepted it was a failure. And it's now the divide is purely between people who think we should remember that failure and not do it again. And people who just want to consign it to history and not talk about it ever again. If you think about it, rhetorically, the substance is different. Boris Johnson ran a general election campaign in 2019, which didn't extol austerity. It actually spoke about investment in strategically popular areas for the coalition he sought to construct, the NHS, schools and the police. So it was a pro-investment message. So in a sense, you've got the Tories under Boris Johnson, you know, they actually baked in the cuts of the previous years. And Rishi Sunak had cuts in his, as Chancellor, cuts baked into his budgets as well. But in the, the rhetoric, and you got kind of, you know, investment, but in a in a way, again, which is targeted towards their, their voter coalition. But 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 because they abandoned themselves the rhetoric invest of, of, of austerity, there wasn't even an electoral mandate for more austerity. So people now, you know, if you're a red wall voter who vote for the Conservatives, you might feel a sense of grievance. I mean, you know, don't vote Tory next time, guys. But you might feel a sense of grievance because clearly you are suffering from the austerity, which you were not promised at the last general election. So in a sense, that consensus against austerity has it was built in public opinion, but it's it's not happened in practice. So yeah, I think I mean the other thing is it's just you get originally what George Osborne tried to do, if you remember, is the strategy was make sure the last Labour government's blamed for the mess financially Britain's in. Blame the last Labour government and therefore the cuts the polling showed for a long time, people just blamed Labour for every cut. But the other point is he went for what was seen as demonised benefit claimant. So they they aimed often for those who, who the media had really gone for. But obviously austerity just widened its scope the more the years went on. It went deep into the working age population, went for tax credits and all the rest of it. People whose wages also then were stagnating and falling. So you ended up with such a large section of the population affected that it's just their lived experience is battering against anyone who's promoting uh, austerity. It's easy to support austerity when it's for somebody else. But when you've suffered it and you don't believe it's the last Labour government, but this government that's responsible and you've been promised austerity will end anyway, you know, and you're also going to end up thinking, when will this ever end? 12 years. You look at kids running around in this country who are kind of like going to high school. They've only ever grown up in austerity. I mean, it's a huge chunk of people's lives and there isn't a sense of any end in sight. So I think, yeah, austerity has become profoundly unpopular in this country in a way it wasn't before. Let's go straight on to our next story. 2022 was the year of not one, not two, but three prime ministers. Here's how it happened. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. I have just accepted Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. I'm sticking around because I was elected to deliver for this country 
And that is what I am determined to do. And will you lead the Conservatives into the next general election? I will lead the Conservatives into the next general election. Definitely. Well, look, yeah. I look forward to spending more time in my constituency and continuing to serve South West Norfolk from the backbenchers. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. It is a noble aim. And I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. That was Rishi Sunak with probably the understatement of the year at the end there. Um, Owen, it's been very chaotic to cover as journalists. It's been entertaining at times. Um, I think especially parts of Liz Truss's premiership, the awkward laughing when she's asked if she's going to fight the next general election. Clearly, she's not going to. How significant is this, though? You know, beyond the sort of drama, the tittle-tattle, the sort of the soap opera of it all, Will the chaos at the top of the Conservative Party and in and out of Downing Street have a legacy in British politics? Yeah, well, we all miss this trust, obviously, very memeable, um, as prime ministers go, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you know, my understanding of what's happened in terms of the instability, which Britain is not known for, um, partly because of our electoral system, and partly there's this British exceptionalism, which is Britain is stable, you know, it's this Edmund Burke kind of continuity and all the rest of it, underpinning British values, compared to those populist, crazy Europeans. And actually, you can see the chaos in Britain in the last few years exceeds that of obviously the vast majority of other European countries. And I do think it goes back to that graph, living standards. I think uh, you've got David Cameron, who is, you know, because we've had 30% of all our post-war prime ministers in the last six years. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable. David Cameron blown up by Brexit, austerity and living standards Declining played a role in that because in terms of getting it to 52%, a lot of people whose lives are becoming harder, they voted against the status quo. Theresa May, her premiership blown up um, in the 2017 election uh, because, uh, again, people stagnating living standards and they thought Labour had a better answer to that. Again, you can see that with, I would say, with Boris Johnson, because even though Pygate played a role, the Tory polling was falling as well, which exacerbated the crisis because of the cost of living crisis. Liz Truss goes without saying. And Rishi Sunak's premiership will also be destroyed by the same thing. I think it's rather than will that turmoil leave a legacy? I think the point is to understand the other way around, which is you have an economic model which has stopped providing rising living standards. And it can't even do it through cheap credit, which is what it was doing before. It just met, People felt like they were better off than they actually were because of they were in debt. Um, but now that's not covering up the fallen living standards. People are just getting noticeably very poorer in a quite a dramatic way. You know, it's predicted now they'll be poorer than they were than 2006. It's ridiculous. I mean, that's it's a huge, you know, it's hard, 16 years or whatever. I mean, it's getting on for half, half your life, Michael. Yeah. So I think I think we've got to understand this turmoil as arising from a broken economic model. I do think the issue, though, for the Conservatives is people have made their minds up about them. They made a mistake, the Tories, in getting rid of Boris Johnson, I would say. I think if they hadn't got rid of Boris Johnson, they wouldn't have ended up with Liz Truss. And Liz Truss has destroyed the Tory party image for lots of people who vote for them because they've crashed the economy and made people's mortgage payments go up. And that's a lot of Tory voters. But I think, you know, the problem is they sullied their reputation amongst some of the people who voted for them in 2019. And I think it will be easy to go when Labour in government to go, 
you know, the bad old days of the Tories when this, that and this happened. It was a period of terrible turmoil and all the rest of it. In a way, the Tories did to Labour in the 1970s. So I think the lasting legacy of this will be the Tories have toxified themselves amongst such a large portion of the population. It may take them a very, very long time to recover. They can't ever write them off because the Tories have a have a habit of, of clawing back when they seem like they've, they're finally over. What have you made of Rishi Sunak's premiership so far? I mean, on Christmas Day, he will have been in office for two months. So it hasn't been long, but it, you know, it's, you'd have thought you would have noticed some sort of you know, pattern of governance since then. I mean, he's almost been just missing. I mean, I, I feel like say, I, I keep forgetting his prime minister. Yeah, I feel like I'm a political journalist, and I kind of never think about Rishi Sunak. He's never, he's never anywhere. I have to remind myself he's prime minister. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, his polling is actually not that bad. You know, it's not the end of the world. His, his personal polling. I mean, at the moment, you know, poll came out today. He's neck and neck with Keir Starmer. I mean, people don't really like Keir Starmer. Whatever his very tedious online army thing. Uh, so I'm not sure that's flattering to Rishi Sunak either. What I'm saying is neither of them are monstrously unpopular, but they're not popular either. Um, the issue is if, if you look at his personal ratings compared to the Conservative collapse in terms of their polling, it's very stark. That suggests that people actually aren't, I don't think people have probably like you and me forgotten he's prime minister, but they just made their minds up about the Conservative Party. I, I think it is interesting what might happen after the May elections, because the Tories are likely to get battered in the May elections. Will that be a revival for Boris Johnson? Well, you see, my view is they they did make a mistake on their own terms getting rid of Boris Johnson. I think they would be behind in the polls, but not anywhere near as bad as they are now, because you wouldn't have had the terrible turmoil the Tories and the country went through as a consequence. But I think there'll be an attempt by Boris Johnson to return to the throne after May, because people will go, Rishi Sunak's not working. He's had time to bed in. The Tories are heading for a terrible electoral defeat. We can't get rid of him and just keep replacing him with other people. The only person who could stand up to become, what well, stand to become leader and have legitimacy is the guy who led us into the last general election. I think they'd still lose in the Boris Johnson because, again, people have made their minds up. And actually, you could tie Boris Johnson to Liz Truss because he clearly backed her. But I think, I think there's still a 50-50 chance Rishi Sunak won't lead the Tories into the next election because they're going to get such a battering in the May elections that I think people might panic and think, send for Boris Johnson, things couldn't get any worse. I mean, do you think it's a strategy, though? I just think it's quite remarkable how invisible he is. I'm wondering if sort of like, you know, because he's he's rich, he's got other options, he could go work in Silicon Valley. Maybe he's not willing to sort of subject himself to the same humiliation as former prime ministers. So when sort of like Boris Johnson would be willing to go out and sort of like get a whipping and so would Liz Truss. Now Rishi Sunak's like, well, the situation isn't great. You know, the nurses are on strike. Everyone's sided with the nurses. No one's sided with me. I don't actually want to go out and humiliate myself in public. So I'm just going to try and keep myself removed personally from what's going on. And as you say, his his personal ratings are sort of staying high enough. You know, they're not blowing anyone away, but he's more popular than the Conservative Party. And maybe he thinks the more he goes out in public, the more his popularity will be drawn down to the level of the Conservative Party. And actually, he's quite a vain person who doesn't want to become as unpopular as his party. I, I think he sucks at politics. I, I, I mean, look, I think people have to remember the reason he was popular for a while, he was the most popular politician in the country, of course, for a while, was just because he was associated with furlough, which is a sort of intervention that other Western nations had to undertake to prevent the collapse of the economy and society during the pandemic. So he was just associated with free money in people's minds. So people just thought, well, he's doing a good job. I'm getting this free money. Um, you know, 
you know, and they so so I think the problem is obviously then what happened is he became associated with some very unpopular decisions, which actually he wasn't good at managing because he's actually not very good at political strategy at all. Um, obviously he went on to lose against Liz Truss, and um, and then became only became prime minister again because you know she eff- effectively set fire to the Conservatives and the economy. The thing with Rishi Sunak is I don't think if you look at other Conservative prime ministers. So if you look at David Cameron, his big strategist was George Osborne. George Osborne was a very cynical politician. He was always thinking of how do we construct a winning voter coalition? And you don't have a sense that Rishi Sunak has that person around him. You don't see, You don't think it's difficult to see someone around Rishi Sunak going, look, we need to keep the blue wall, which is conservative seats which are at risk, particularly from the Liberal Democrats. But we also need to keep our red wall um, intact. How are we going to keep kind of relatively privileged middle class southerners how are we going to keep those relatively privileged middle class southerners in place but also those in often homeowners i should say but in northern areas who voted for the conservatives give us a majority i just don't see a set of policies which are trying to stitch that coalition together and that's why i think he's in trouble because he's not a strategist and but who is his strategist who is who's that person thinking how do we construct that do you see what i mean yeah, I mean, I feel almost like maybe he just wanted to be prime minister for a while to put it on his CV and he, you know, doesn't really mind losing the next election or at least he'd be, you know, he'd prefer to lose the next election sort of in a respectable way, you know, where people in the city and people in America think, oh yeah, he was a relatively reasonable prime minister than sort of go all out and maybe do the things he would need to do to give the Conservatives a chance. I don't know, it seems like he's a very risk-averse politician. And I think that's probably carried over to his 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 premiership, which is not necessarily a great idea if you're way behind in the polls to be as no, risk averse I mean, as he seems to be. We have to remember why I became prime minister in the first place. It's because Sajid Javid refused to accept number 10 imposing advisers on him uh, after the Tories won the last election. That was Dominic Cummings trying to centralise um, number 10 and number 11. So they, you know, he was in charge of the Treasury, basically. Sajid Javid refused that, and therefore he resigned and was replaced with Rishi Sunak. Basically, he's going to be Dominic Cummings' puppet, and Dominic Cummings left. So then Rishi Sunak, suddenly at the front line of British politics, associated with all this popularity just because of the furlough scheme. And then, you know, obviously surrounded by people clearly telling him, well, Rishi, I think, you know, you probably didn't imagine this happening, but you'd be, you're very popular. I think you'll be a great prime minister because you get hangers on in that situation because people can see how popular it is and therefore you become the obvious replacement to Boris Johnson. So, yeah, I think that's what happened with him. But you're right, the stakes are low for him because I would worry if I'm a lot of Tory MPs. Um, in in 2015, when almost all Scottish Labour MPs lost their seats, a year later, nearly all of them were unemployed. And I think a lot of Tory MPs, you know, a lot of them, they're leaving now because, you know, everyone can remember that moment in 1997 when Michael Putterloo lost his seat. And a lot of those MPs now face being that guy. They face being the guy on national television who millions of people watch being utterly humiliated as they are trounced in what are seen as safe seats by the Labour Party. And then they're going to be unemployable. It's not like city firms are going to be going, oh, yeah, you're a loser Tory MP. Please come and work for us. So Rishi Sunak doesn't have that. You're right. I think, therefore, the stakes are lower for him because if you're Rishi Sunak, you could just spend the rest of your life being rich. (laughs) What are you going to do? Build lots of swimming pools. Go on holiday all the time. Go and live in America. Well, that's what I'd do if I were him. Just go and live in LA. Why do you need to be prime minister? So yeah, he doesn't have the same problem that all other Tories have, which is you're going to get humiliated and the normal path of MP to work for a big hedge fund is not looking that plausible because you're associated with terrible loss. 
And it's still looking very plausible for him because, I mean, the story is almost ideal. You know, he, 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 he sort of wasn't a populist. He stood in his leadership election and said the truth about the economy. Then what he said would happen happened. And then he stood in um, to, to rescue it all until he lost the next general election, which won't be blamed on him. It will be blamed on Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. Then he can go off and work for a hedge fund in the United States. I mean, it seems, it seems a plausible sequence of events to me and potentially why he's not fighting as hard as one might expect a prime minister so behind in the polls to be, or at least his party is so behind in the polls as it is. Next story. 2022 was the year our sovereign queen Elizabeth II died. This is what happened next. This is BBC News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. From across the United Kingdom and around the globe, they came and they waited and they queued. All for this, a fleeting but significant moment, a chance to say goodbye, not just to a monarch, but to a woman who meant so much to so many. She had compassion, empathy, forgiveness and love. And I think that has given more to the world than anything. If only other leaders could be that way, wouldn't we live in a wonderful place? It was amazing. I wouldn't have missed it. It was worth waiting 11 hours. That's Charles struggling with the pressure of becoming king. Owen, it, it probably wasn't a surprise to anyone that a 97-year-old died this year, the Queen. Um, but did anything surprise you about what happened next? So, you know, the 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 huge public outcry or not, you know, outcry, public sort of grief, I think you could say in that queue. Was it grief? It was something, an outpouring of something from the public. Did you, did anything surprise you? Have you changed your view on, on the monarchy or, or, or on anything because of uh, what happened after the Queen died? Ardent support of Charles I now. God save the King. No, um, hasn't been, you know, I'm afraid. I think what I found just very cynical about the whole exercise was the queue, which was obviously used to try and browbeat the nation into thinking that there's this mass outbreak of huge mourning. I'm not saying, you know, there were obviously people who were sad, including people who aren't to the monarchist, partly because she was around for a long time. I get that. And, you know, you should never obviously relish someone's death unless I'm a monster. But I think, you know, the queue, let's, it was 200,000 people in the end. That's what the figure we came up with was, which you wouldn't have thought from the broadcast coverage. And obviously what they did, given there was huge amounts of time to prepare for the Queen's death, is they could have had a ticketing system so people didn't have to wait for hours. But they didn't want that to happen because that wouldn't have the same optics. They wanted the optics of a nation so convulsed with mourning that people have to wait for hours uh, in order to pass by the Queen's coffin. So I don't actually think it was the mass grief that you would have seen with previous monarchs, particularly previous long-running monarchs. You know, I would say very clearly that enthusiasm for the monarchy has subsided and waned in this country. It's much less amongst younger people than amongst older people. Every generation has less enthusiasm. So I haven't changed my view, which is the monarchy's days are numbered. I think that will take a while, but I don't think in 100 years Britain will be a monarchy. And I think the proof was partly in the response to Queen's death. It wasn't the mass outpouring that you might have expected 
from a queen who was generally well regarded actually by most of the population no one really disliked the queen and you know and had been around for so long i i think i think they should be worried actually yeah, I suppose I have a slightly different take on the queue to you. I mean, obviously, I accept it's cynical. I think they knew that that was going to happen. They wanted to have a queue because they wanted to sort of demonstrate an outpouring of grief. I don't actually, you know, I went to Buckingham Palace to sort of see what was going on. It wasn't it wasn't giving outpouring of grief. It was sort of giving people who were sort of quite interested to play a part in history. But I suppose for me, in a way, I'm quite sympathetic towards people wanting to play a part in history. And I also think if they'd replaced the queue of a ticketing system, you know, I think from sort of the vox pops you hear of people in the queue. And it sort of makes sense to me. It was the queue itself, not the seeing the queen lying in state that people will find so memorable. So you had all of these people saying, this is the best 11 hours of my life. You know, I've made so many friends. People kind of like to be part of a national event. And it's all the more sort of memorable and real, I think, if you have to suffer somewhat. You know, it's a bit like, you know, the way sort of people nostalgically talk about the Blitz, but obviously in the Blitz, you had bombs falling down and people were dying, you know, so you had this camaraderie of people coming together, but you also had mass death and it was awful. This was a bit like a safe blitz, you know, so everyone has to come out into central London and spend all night in public meeting different people they wouldn't necessarily have met, but there are no bombs dropping. Do you know what I mean? Do you think in a way it was nice for people to have an opportunity to feel part of something historic without fear of dying? Yeah, not no no bombs and no people, yeah, stealing things from the rubble. Oh, not supposed to say that about the Blitz, are we? <laughs> There's a lot of myths about the Blitz, I'm afraid. It's all it's not all lies, but a lot of it is actually complete lies. And um, yeah, I don't begrudge anyone for being part. What is be you know the polling showed what you just said, which is a lot of people were there because it's part of history, and I don't I and I get that. You know, so lots of people queue to Lenin's tomb in Moscow, and I don't think a lot of them are ardent Leninists. They're just quite interested in in history. He was a very consequential figure, and they want to go and see his mausoleum. Yeah, so I mean, I would say probably the the majority of people who queued obviously were were pretty supportive of the monarchy, but it's just such a small sliver of the population, two hundred thousand, and to be honest, a lot of them were tourists and people from visiting and so on. I just don't think it's all. I'm saying is I'm not having a go at the people who got involved. I think you know I know people who went in the queue. Fine, I hope you had a great time. Uh, all felt part of something. I think. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel part of something. I just don't think it should be held up as evidence of monarchist fervour. That's the problem I have, because support for the monarchy has dwindled in this country. It, it, the last, um, you know, the Queen's dad, more people turned out and the population was lower. You know, and also if we're going to, you know, it's probably harder for people back then because of travel costs and also, you know, less people, you know, more people doing nine to five jobs than today. I'm just saying it doesn't bode well for the future of the monarchy. I don't think it showed massive enthusiasm. Do you think we need something like the death of the Queen but that the left can do? I mean, obviously, you've already mentioned sort of like the queue for to see Lenin's body when he died. But, you know, something that's a bit irrational that people can be a part of, which is sort of bigger than themselves. Do you think, and I suppose that's why I worry with with um, Republicans, is sort of, we're saying, look, this is irrational, this is silly. Why are you part of this? And people are like, well, I mean, it's harmless and I like being part of something. What have you got to offer? What can I be a part of that, that you're going to say is going to be the, the meaning that brings the country together? Do we need something that people will queue for 11 hours for? Even if it's like, you know, 200,000 people is not loads of people, but 200,000 people queuing for 11 hours is a demonstration of a certain 
commitment to an idea. And I don't yeah. know if we, we, need, we need an alternative. We need something else that 200,000 people would queue for for 11 hours that isn't a symbol of, of aristocracy and inherited privilege and wealth. Anti-austerity demonstration? Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I take your point. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The left often comes across as misery, misery, misery guts. And that's where the right is very good at exploiting that, which is basically the left hate everything you like. They hate the country that you live in. They treat you with derision and contempt. They think the things you really like doing are backwards and pointless and stupid and you're bigots and idiots. Yeah, I get all that. That is definitely exploited. I don't think there was that much mockery of the queue. I mean, like you could say now, well, isn't that what you're doing? Well, all I'm saying, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, I think there's nothing wrong with taking part in the queue. I just don't think it's a good barometer of monarchist fervor in the country. But I think you're right that the left, I mean, it, it comes back now, I suppose, partly to this discussion about patriotism, which a lot of people on the left don't like to talk about because they fear it conjures up chauvinism and it can't be divorced from racism, reactionary parts of our history, like the empire, which are at the root of racism in this country to this day. And, you know, it's interesting because obviously in France, there's, there's a difference there. The French left, because of the French Revolution being at the centre of what it is to be French and French values, they waved the French flag because the French flag is a Republican flag, which sums up liberty, egalité, fraternity, rather than a big Union Jack, which doesn't, with a national anthem, which is about the monarchy. It's the same the American left as well, are far more comfortable talking often in, in those terms. You know, I do think there's something in, you know, the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders, which made people think that he loved the country in which he lived in. And, you know, can we talk about how we love so much of the country, which we do? I mean, we love the NHS, the welfare state, the struggles for our history, for our rights. Those are parts of our history. We, we're perfectly comfortable saying we love the city we're from. I love, you know, it's not the same as a nation. I get that. But, you know, that's a tension the left in this country hasn't resolved because of our history, because our revolution was premature. We had a revolution in the 17th century. It's not part of identity. So that makes it harder for the left to make a claim on national identity and national ceremonies in a way a French person or an American person would find much easier because they are self-consciously revolutionary in their identity in a way we're not. I think over the Christmas break, I'm going to get together a list of all the things people have queued for more than 11 hours for and pick my favorite. And then maybe that will be my religion. Like it's Harry Potter releases, Lady Gaga tickets, the Queen dying, Lenin dying. Any others at the top of your head, Owen? Things that people have queued for 11 hours for that we might want to uh, incorporate into our politics? Can we not make Harry Potter a religion <laughs> in this country? I just think maybe back away from that one. It is certainly a religion for some people in this country in a way, which we don't really need to discuss. I don't know, you're right, yeah. What do we have? I mean, people queue for, like, gamer stuff. Game, Yeah, computer games. People get really, really excited about new computer game releases. I don't think they, they don't queue anymore, though, do they? Because they just download it. So that's, that's a really shows how, shows how down with the kids I am. <laughs> yeah, I did the, the the queue sort of like the coverage of the queue I did think you could kind of do that but at Glastonbury because it's very much a similar sort of you know like it has the same element you know people are shitting in these horrible toilets and they haven't had a shower for three days and the unpleasantness of it sort of becomes part of the experience straight on 2022 was the year land wars returned to Europe as Russia mounted a full-scale invasion of Ukraine 
It was as sudden as it was brutal and relentless. Ukrainians woke up to find themselves plunged into the midst of war. Explosions and air raid sirens ringing out here in Kyiv and cities across this country as Russia launched a full-scale invasion on multiple fronts in the early hours of this morning. Hundreds and hundreds of people here in Dnipro who have come to the center of town and they are in the process here in this section of making Molotov cocktails. This is Yablonska Street in Bucha, and it shows the vehicles, Ukrainian vehicles, having to drive around to slalom around bodies in the road. We've pixeled them, pixeled them out um, so that they're not so horrible. But there's this, this vehicle recording bodies having to drive around them. The Russians have said this is simply not true. Uh, these bodies have appeared since they left the area on the 30th, 31st of March. And they said these bodies were just placed there, um, obviously by the Ukrainians, in order to discredit the Russians. And so this piece of film is, has been subject to an enormous amount of controversy. This week, a major breakthrough for Ukraine in the northeast. Its forces advancing quickly through the Russian lines. Wrecked Russian vehicles lining the roads. Russian forces caught off guard, apparently in disarray. Ukrainian troops liberating cities and the Ukrainian flag flying once again. So that was Putin at the end there, warning the West he's not bluffing when he threatens to use nuclear weapons. I mean, the war in Ukraine has been going on for almost 10 months now. I was surprised when it started. I mean, I had been saying it would seem irrational and bizarre for Putin to mount a full-scale invasion. Surely he's just trying to get some compromises from the West. But no, we, we have a full-scale ground war, which doesn't seem to be abating. You know, I'm not going to ask you to predict what happens next, but I mean, I suppose in the broader sense, has your understanding of politics changed in any way because of sort of the way this, this war has gone and the shape of this invasion? Well, partly like, yeah, I was surprised at the invasion because whatever I think of Putin, I think he's a reactionary um, reactionary autocrat uh, who should be regarded as the enemy of anyone progressive. He's not been irrational in terms of his previous interventions. If you think Georgia, um, for example, like, you know, he essentially, you know, kind of localised skirmishes or Kazakhstan. You know, you look at that and you can see the reason behind it, partly because, you know, you can see that the Russians have a very good chance of winning. And what I find so shocking about Ukraine was that we don't, we're not accustomed, obviously, to major land invasions in Europe after World War II of that shape. Obviously, you had the Warsaw Pact invasions. My dad was caught up in one in Czechoslovakia in 1968. Pictures of him in Wensler Square, uh, which I always found interesting. But that wasn't the same. This, you know, those were kind of the Warsaw Pact marched in. To be fair, in, in, in Hungary in 1956, it was far bloodier, but it wasn't a, a war between states of, of, of sort, which we haven't seen in Europe for a very long time. 
So I found that very surprising. I think, I think for me, it was clarifying in that I think I would locate myself, even though I'm sure some people would describe it in the anti-imperialist tradition, in that my understanding is, if you look at global politics, we should centre the role present and historic of what we call the Western or global North nations who colonised much of the earth, plundered their resources, subjugated them, inflicted terrible genocides and horror, which we haven't come to terms with at all. And then even after wars of liberation, struggles for independence, those countries are still subjugated because of the global frameworks that are set in place. And occasionally, you know, through things like the West supporting dictatorships or direct armed interventions. I think what Russia should, what Russia's invasion of Ukraine should be a clarifying moment that although that is a very important way of looking at the world, Russia did engage in an outright war of aggression against Ukraine for which there is no justification. And if people talk about NATO's expansion east, and I'm, look, I wouldn't support, I'd vote to leave NATO, but that puts me in a small minority. I think we have to understand where Eastern European leftists and progressives come from, because their perspective is, it's reasonable for you to talk about the West and Iraq, but our historic oppression has come from the East. It has come from Russia, and we have reasons to fear Russia, and that's pushed large sections of Eastern Europe voluntarily into the arms of NATO. It's not like they've been coerced into that position. And I don't, and I think you can look at Putin, who was supported in his rise by Blair and was a friend of the West to begin with, let's not forget, including when he flattened Chechnya, which is a horrific crime. Chechnya was completely flattened with per capita far greater losses than Ukraine has suffered. And that was supported by the West at the time. But I think it's so important to just be clear. You don't have to support Zelensky or the Ukrainian government or whatever. He was democratically elected. Got seventy percent of the vote. I don't think anyone would dispute that. And he was elected, frankly, not as some big rabble-rousing Ukrainian. Let's take on Russia. He actually stood on a platform of reconciliation with Russia. Nothing was done to provoke Russia in any meaningful way whatsoever. So I think it's clarifying in whatever we think and we should about the role of imperialism from the West. This was a brutal war of aggression, and we should support Ukraine's war effort as a war of liberation. You know, if Ukraine stopped fighting, people say this a lot, but it's true. If Russia stopped fighting, they would well, just go home. If Ukraine stopped fighting, they would literally be destroyed as an independent nation. They would be subjugated by Russia, which would inflict vast horrors, which we've seen in their occupied areas, which you've seen validated by independent human rights organizations. So I think we have to be clear here, there is an aggressor, and there is a war of liberation, and we should support that war of liberation. And that is not in any way compromising our stance against the horrors of Western imperialism, which define much of the world, and which we should continue to fight unapologetically. Yeah, I don't think we need to say there's, there were no provocations. I mean, I suppose in, in 2014, you had lots of people who saw that as a coup. Then you did have you know violence in the East from neo-Nazis towards sort of more pro-Russian members of the Ukrainian populace. And then Zelensky, I think, sort of arrested some pro-Russian politicians. But obviously, none of that justifies an invasion, a full-scale invasion. I suppose that's why I think in the run-up to that war, there was a lot more, or I, I at least thought one needed to come to this with a lot more nuance because there is sort of different 
legitimate interests in the region. And there are ways in which sort of pro-Russian Ukrainians or the Russians themselves would have felt like they've been a bit screwed over by the West in that region. But once you have a full-scale invasion where you've just got the Russians bombing Ukrainian cities and Ukrainian civilians, the grey areas go, essentially, don't they? Where grey areas remain is what's going to happen next. So I want to bring up a map of the current state of play in Ukraine. As I say, we're not expecting you to come here for definitive predictions about what's going to happen next in the war, but it's worthy of, of discussion. So as you can see here in the yellow zones, that's places which Russia had controlled, which have now been won back by Ukraine. So the fight back from the Ukrainians surprised many people, myself included. And I have to say, you know, most sort of national security experts, even Western intelligence before the war, thought that Ukraine would fall very quickly. They've surprised essentially everyone. Um, you can see just around Melitopol in the southeast. The reason that's in that sort of yellow with black stripes is because apparently there's sort of partisan resistance there. So that's why that's being called contested. This is a map from the Financial Times. Um, I said, oh, and we're not going to do predictions, but I suppose let's just talk about what's at stake going into 2023. Because I suppose w one of the reasons why it's such a scary situation, really, is because, as you've said, you know, we want Ukraine to win this war, essentially. They've been in invaded in a sort of imperialist war of aggression, right? But at the same time, you have a situation where every time the Ukrainians do very well, that raises the prospect of Vladimir Putin escalating. Now, I think especially if Ukraine were to try and take back Crimea, which is something that, you know, the, the most ardent supporters of Ukraine and NATO and um, and understandably many people in Ukraine want, that's when I think you could be looking at something like nuclear war. Yeah. So just, while just, I, I think we can be clear this is a war of aggression, also some compromise in 2023 would hopefully be a, a good thing as soon as it's possible, right? Yeah, I mean, just quickly, because I can see in a super chat, there's something I just want to quickly just rebut, because I, I do see realism, foreign policy realism creeping into leftist discourse, which I don't get, because someone said, war in Ukraine wasn't justified. However, why surprise the invasion? What would the Monroe Doctrine have done, have the US done in a similar situation? First, the Cuban Missile Crisis, in response to US missiles in Turkey, and Merkel regarding the Minsk Agreement. Well, yeah, the US is... Yeah, you're right. It's treated Latin America as its backyard and regarded various things as provocations. But they're not. We don't accept them. We oppose them. We think those were unjust things that the US did. I mean, it's not enough to say the US did these things, but because we're, we're against them. So, you know, it's kind of neither here nor there. Obviously, Russia treats Ukraine, Eastern Europe as its backyard in the way that America treats Latin America as its backyard. But neither is good. And both need to be fought. In terms of what will happen, well, look, I mean, the, the fear I have actually is not just what Putin would do. And actually, you know, given what he did in Ukraine was so irrational and a departure from his, you know, he was like a, a more rational despot before, you know, you, you do have to be concerned that therefore he will do other things which are profoundly irrational. That is a concern. You know, what if he detonates tactical nuclear missiles, for example, in Ukraine. What happens then? Anyone who watches Threads, I don't want to depress anyone, but Threads is a horrifying, you know, in the 80s, it was made about a potential nuclear war. And it started in Iran and it started with a showdown between the, the, the two powers. And it starts with the use of a battle of, of a tactical nuclear strike by the Soviets. And that's how it escalates. So I don't want to, you know, you do see that. My other fear is what happens if there's a military coup? What happens if Putin's replaced by somebody who's actually worse because, you know, Russia is suffering a humiliating and arguably epochal defeat in Ukraine. 
and you could, uh, if he is forced back, I mean, the day, you know, you start to ask what happens if Crimea, what happens if the Ukrainians end up marching into Crimea? That's when things could get very worrying, either because Putin then escalates because it's his regime at survival. If Putin lost Crimea, he's finished I mean, he'd just be finished. And the, the risk is he'd be replaced by somebody even worse. So I think given these are nuclear armed blocks, there's every reason we should be scared. Of course we should. Even if there's a tiny risk of nuclear war, we're literally talking about the extermination of human civilization. You know, when Joe Biden's talking about this, you know, Europe being people, you know, worries about a nuclear war. Well, I, good. I'm glad that does exist in European cities, which is why we should be wary of anything that escalates. And, you know, we support Ukraine's war of liberation, but we don't support anything and can't support anything that escalates to a point where it could be a nuclear war. And that, you know, people talk about a no-fly zone to begin with. You remember that madness? So it's a difficult balance. But I think what will happen is, you know, at some point, I think Russia will have to find a way of cutting its losses and saving face because they're not, you know, at best, they're, they're going to they're lose more territory. And the question is, what happens then with the Putin regime? Yeah, I think you've been a bit harsh towards the realist position there. I mean, I do think that, you know, there were many assumptions that realists made um, at the start of the Ukraine war, which turned out to be wrong. You know, people thought that Ukraine would fold much quicker than they did. Well, they haven't folded. But I suppose the position isn't necessarily, look, because you expect the United States to sort of treat South America as its domain, you should consider that their right. It's more that if um, something is in their sphere of influence, is it risky? Is it worth the risk to sort of flood that region with arms from its opponent. So, I mean, you could say, you know, the anti-realists about the Cuban missile crisis would say, look, Cuba is a sovereign country. The Soviets should be able to plant nuclear bombs there if they want, or they should be able to plant whatever long range missiles, blah, 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 blah. They're a sovereign country. They're at risk. They're, they're threatened by their imperialist neighbor. We should support the Cubans. And therefore the, the Soviets are perfectly justified if they flood it with arms. Now, you could say that's what's going on in Ukraine now. We've got the West flooding Ukraine with arms. And it, to say that that might not be sensible doesn't necessarily mean you say it should be Russia's right to invade Ukraine. But you're saying if you've got one superpower flooding the neighbor of another superpower with offensive weapons, then maybe that's not the best idea. Now, in this situation, I mean, I think it, it does seem like it probably is worth giving Ukraine weapons. But I mean, I, I don't necessarily think you've been fair to the realist position there, Ryan. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I mean, just on the real, if we go, if, how far do we take the realist position? Do we say that Castro, after the, the 1959 revolution, was not a communist revolution in Cuba? It shifted into one that aligned Cuba with the Soviet bloc by 1962. Was it a provocation by Fidel Castro? Was he provoking the United States by shifting the character of the Cuban revolution from one which was a kind of left leaning war of national liberation? where he didn't have a position. I mean, he was then obviously repeatedly antagonized and attacked by the United States. But you could, was it a provocation to align himself to the Soviet bloc in the way he then subsequently did? Well, I mean, you know, I, I just think the danger we've got is you and I both oppose NATO. You and I would vote to leave NATO, I presume. I'm just speaking on your behalf now, but I, I presume we would. But the fact is, in Eastern Europe, because of their history and what's happened as regards Russia in their history, they've ended up in a position where they fear Russia and therefore seek actively the protection of the Western bloc. We can't, I mean, it's important when you're engaging with where people are at to be able to represent their opinions properly. And I don't think the left in this country is properly understood where the Polish left, for example, or the Baltic left is coming from, because we have an obvious position on NATO, which, it, you know, NATO includes Turkey, which is waged war in the Kurds. Like there were reasons, very good reasons, 
to look at to look at NATO or what they did to Libya. But we have to have a bit more understanding of where people in Eastern Europe are if we ever want to build organic links of solidarity with them. Because I think the view of the left has almost been sometimes in this country that NATO has kind of marched somehow into Eastern Europe when actually it doesn't engage with the autonomy of people in Eastern Europe and why they fear Russia for good reasons. But you're right. Look, you know, NATO shouldn't have expanded east. The way I would look at it is, you know, rather than seeing it as, as, you know, that's provoked Putin, is that's and that's led many people in Russia to feel besieged. And that's been exploited, that sense of being besieged and humiliated by Putinism. In the way, I don't like, I'm not making a comparison with the Nazis because the Nazis are in a league of their own. But, you know, when we say the Versailles Treaty was a disaster, which it was, and it had a massive role in the rise of the Nazis, which it did, are we repeating pro-Nazi talking points? Because the Nazis also said the Versailles Treaty was a disaster and a humiliation for Germany and all the rest of it. So I think we can talk about the humiliation of Russia and how that was exploited by Putinism, but we can't ever get in a position where we think or we lend our you know, sympathy to the idea that in any way Ukraine brought this upon themselves because they didn't. It's a war of aggression by an aggressively nationalist regime which has committed horrific atrocities and a regime which should be unapologetically opposed by anyone left. I saw someone in the chat saying, I don't understand anything about military tactics. Russia's winning. Don't think so, guys. Well, it remains to be seen, as I say, we're not military strategists. We're going to wrap up there, though. Thank you so much for joining us for 2022. It's been a chaotic year. I'm glad to have shared it with you. Thank you so much for your super chats today and throughout the year, for your comments, for your feedback. It's always incredibly welcome. I can't wait to see you on January the 4th. That's when we'll be back. Usual time. Make sure to hit subscribe if you haven't and look out for some content over the Christmas and New Year period. Owen Jones, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Always a very good friend of the show. What a pleasure, Michael. Always good to see your cherubic face, I was going to say, but I don't think, do you have a cherubic face? I'm not sure I'd call it cherubic. Say pleasing face. <laughs> I'll, I'll take pleasing. I'll take pleasing face. You've got a very pleasing face um, yourself. Yours is probably a bit more cherubic than mine, actually. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Have a happy Christmas and a wonderful new year. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.